Hello guys and gals, welcome back. It's Brooke Rankin, and thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Unorthodox Crime. Today we'll be talking about Israel Keys, aka the Killer Traveling Soldier. Before we begin, I must let you know that today's case is intended for mature audiences. It contains adult content, graphic language, graphic violence, and sexual content. Viewer discretion is advised. Now, let's get right into today's case. Israel Keyes was born on January 7, 1978, in Cove, Utah, as the second child of John Jeffrey Keyes, a maintenance man, and Heidi Hackison, a third-generation American with Swedish ancestors. He had an older sister, four younger sisters, and three younger brothers. Soon after his birth, the Keyes families moved to an area in Stephen County, Washington called Aladdin Road where John Keyes purchased land just north of Colleyville, a remote hamlet in the northeastern part of the state. There, he was raised in a Mormon environment, in which he was homeschooled, but Keyes also occasionally attended a Christian identity church, which advocated white supremacist beliefs. Keyes would later tell friends, neighbors, and co-workers that he was raised Amish. They lived at times without electricity, and for years, some of the kids slept in a tent. The kids earned money through under-the-table jobs, cutting firewood or working on farms. He started developing an obsession with guns. He said he spent time in the woods and hunted, quote, anything with a heartbeat, end quote. Also, in Aladdin Road, the family became neighbors and friends with future white supremacist and family annihilator Chevy Coey and his brother Cheyenne. During his childhood years, Keyes would walk around with a pistol everywhere he went, and at the age of 14, his grandfather gave him a 38 caliber revolver in which he outfitted with his first homemade silencer. He and a friend also had a habit of breaking into houses and burglarizing them. He said he would steal the neighbor's guns and hide them in a catch at his family's home. He would also shoot at houses with BB guns and start fires in the woods. When his parents found out, they made him apologize and return the guns. At this time, Keyes also began killing pet animals. Between 1995 and 1997, he started working in a seven-man crew for a construction company, doing custom work for customers with needs beyond construction. Later in the 1990s, the family moved to Smyrna, Maine, where they became involved in the maple syrup business. It is there that his parents were... He rejected his parents' faith and openly declared himself as an atheist. As a result, he was kicked out of the family home. Sometime between 1996 and 1998, Keyes committed his first actual crime, abducting a teenage girl from a hiking group along the Deschutes River near Maupin, Oregon, and raping her, but releasing her afterwards. He said that he had, by his late teenage years, decided that he could rape or kill and get away with it. He was also interested in Satanism at this time and began to plan a satanic ritual killing involving a young woman. The area where Keyes was working was a popular place for inner tubers to float the Deschutes River. Keyes told investigators that one day he stood on the beach along the river, waded out, and grabbed a teenage girl with sandy blonde hair who was the last in her group of tubers. He dragged her to a remote campground bathroom, tied her up with ropes, and raped her. Keyes planned to strangle the girl and dump her body in the toilet pit, where he, 
wouldn't be discovered for a long time. He had knives with him to use for the satanic ritual. The girl was a teenager, maybe between the ages of 14 and 18. She was, quote, really scared, he said. She kept saying that she wasn't going to tell anybody. He told her to shut up, but kept talking. She was pretty smart. It worked, he said. Things never really got violent like they could have if she had been fighting me. So he let her go. Quote, I was too timid. I wasn't violent enough. I made up my mind that I was never going to let that happen again. End quote. He was never charged for this crime, and it's unclear if the investigators located the victim. Later, in 1998, he went to New Jersey and enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving as a specialist in the Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry. He said that he liked the survival skills aspects of the military training. He was stationed at Fort Lewis near Tacoma, Washington, where he met the mother of his child. It's not said, but more than likely, assuming that they were sexually active during this time. He was also stationed at Fort Hood in Killen, Texas, and he was also trained in Sinai, Egypt, where when stationed in Egypt for six months, he said that he and his friends would drink a lot and would take trips to Tel Aviv to pick up prostitutes. During his service, Keyes received an Army Achievement Medal for admirable service while assigned as a gunner and assistant gunner from the 2nd of December 1998 to the 8th of July 2001 in the Alpha Company 60mm Mortar Section. On May of 2001, he received a DUI charge in Thurston County, Washington, followed by a state charge for driving with a suspended license. Later that year, he was honorably discharged from the Army. Keyes allegedly took advantage of his discharge to murder his first victims, an unidentified couple, according to his later confessions. He then moved to a small town of Nibe, Washington, where he established a village market for the nearby Macaw tribe. Keyes also began dating the unidentified woman whom he had relations with while he was in the Army. She was also at this time pregnant with his child. He spent most of the next six years living on the reservation in the Turnigan neighborhood with his nurse practitioner girlfriend and their child. He was working in the Parks and Recreation Department for the Tribal Authority. He spent a lot of time in the forests and mountains of the Olympic Peninsula and made long trips to eastern Washington, where he'd spent most of his childhood. On November 13, 2002, his father had passed away. Keyes attended the funeral. Later that year, he separated with his girlfriend, who took their daughter with her. In the first few months of 2006, Keyes began taking part in marathons. Between that year and the next year, he had allegedly claimed two more victims. It is at this point that he began making numerous travels for unspecified reasons. In 2007, Keyes opened a new business called Keyes Construction, which was extremely reliable. In 2009, after making travels to California, Washington, and New England, Keyes decided to rob a bank in order to fund his crimes. On April 10th, allegedly after abducting and murdering a man, he walked into the community bank in Tupper Lake, New York, sporting sunglasses, a jacket, jeans, gray sneakers, two-toned gloves, 
and a fake mustache with goatee. He was also armed with a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson semi-automatic pistol. He was also equipped with a 22 caliber 10.22 Ruger Charger pistol. Successfully robbing the bank, fled, and buried a toolbox about a half a mile down a path in the Woodside Natural Area of Sussex, Vermont. The toolbox contained a desiccant, a substance used as a drying agent, the Smith & Wesson, and the Ruger Charger. Four days later, he returned home by airplane. He then spent the next two years repeatedly traveling through the country for a variety of undisclosed reasons. At the time between April and May 2011, he constructed a homemade silencer for the Ruger Charger pistol. He then decided to test it out during his next crime. After flying to Indiana and then driving over to New York to attach and test his silencer, Keyes drove to Vermont, where he rediscovered the toolbox that he had buried earlier, to which he decided to randomly target and murder someone before going on a bank robbing and arson spree. After selecting a location to take a victim, which happened to be an abandoned farmhouse in Sussex, Keyes readied his weapon and began watching motorists from a safety of a nearby wooded area. Initially targeting a motorist driving a yellow Volkswagen Beetle, Keyes found that the plan was impractical and switched his focus to a couple instead. Wandering around the suburban neighborhoods on the late hours of July 8, 2011, he set his sights on 8 Colbert Street, occupied by the couriers Bill and Lorraine. The home was less than a half a mile away from the Handy Suits Hotel where Keyes was staying. He said that he chose this house for no other reason beyond the design of their home. He said they lived in a house with an attached garage that would be easy to enter. First inspecting the house, disabling the phone line, then breaking inside, it was then described as a blitz attack. He ambushed the animal hospital technician and medical practice worker as they slept in their bedroom, subduing and tying them up before taking Lorraine's Smith & Wesson 38 revolver, among other items. Keyes then abducted the couple. He let them put on their slippers rather than walk across broken glass as he led them into their car, which he used to take When they arrived at the farmhouse, he attempted to contact someone through their cell phone, only to abandon the plan after finding out that the phones didn't have texting capabilities. As he took Bill to the basement, Lorraine attempted to escape, only to be recaptured by him. Bill also tried to escape, but Keyes incapacitated him. Bill then pleads for his life, as described by Keyes in this police interview. And at that point, he was still like trying to talk me out of it. He was like, he's like, just let us go. I know you're in too deep, but we haven't really seen you. You can still walk away. <laughs> and I, was, I just kind of laughed at him. I was like, you know, I was like, I don't know if I actually said anything. He then bludgeoned him as Bill called out, Where's my wife? And in a fit of rage and at the loss of control over his scheme, he shot him to death with the silenced 1022 Ruger charger. He then sexually assaulted Lorraine, strangling her into unconsciousness, took her to the basement, and strangled her again this time fatally. He described pouring Drano on the bodies before packing them into garbage bags. 
He then stopped to smoke a cigar in the backyard during the middle of a rainstorm. Keyes then buried the bodies of the couriers in debris and left them in the farmhouse basement. Intending to return later to burn down the farmhouse, his plan to go on a bank robbing spree soon proved to be impractical when the courier's car experienced some serious mechanical issues and he abandoned it next day to the, in the parking lot of an apartment complex at 203 Pearl Street. During his trip back home, he went into the White National Monument Forest in New Hampshire and disposed of the items that he took from the couriers in a suitcase that he set ablaze. He then abandoned his tools and the courier's revolver in New York before returning to his home in Anchorage. Unbeknownst to him, from October 25th to October 27th, the farmhouse was demolished, and the debris, including the bags that contained the courier's corpse, was transported to a local landfill. In October or November of the same year, he purchased a police scanner. On February 1st, 2012, Keyes decided to kill again, driving around aimlessly through Anchorage in search of a potential victim, setting his sights on an 18-year-old barista named Samantha Kagan. Security cameras caught the act. He approached her in her coffee kiosk, the Tudor Road through coffee stand. The stand closes at 8 p.m., so on the video you see her doing her closing duties when a masked man walks up to the window. She handed something to the customer through the window, which we can only assume is cash. You see her back up while raising her arms like someone has a gun pointed to her. She then turns off the lights. The masked man jumps through the window. Then after a while, you see two individuals walk away. What the camera doesn't show is after his demands were met, he tied her up, waited for her boyfriend, Dwayne Tortellani, to come pick her up from work, intending to abduct him too, but changes his mind and drags Samantha outside. She attempted to escape, but he quickly recaptured her, forced her into his truck, and kept her captive at West Anchorage neighborhood home. The next day, Keyes went to Samantha's home, broke into Tortellani's truck, and stole the debit card that he shared with Samantha. But Tortellani and Samantha's father, James, witnessed him commit the act. After successfully testing out the debit card, Keyes returned home and murdered Samantha, leaving her body in the shed on his property. He then traveled to New Orleans, Louisiana, to embark on a ship cruise. Upon returning from the cruise, Keyes increasingly worried about the large amount of publicity brought by Samantha's abduction. He decided to commit a crime spree. Exploring around the west of Dallas, Texas, he encountered a 3,500-square-foot, one-story brick house in Alden on February 16th, which he robbed before burning it and the nearby barn. He then drove to a nearby town, Azul, where he, doned with a hard hat, sunglasses, gloves, and a breathing mask, robbed the National Bank of Texas within two minutes before escaping. He later buried the money around the Post Oak Cemetery in Glen Rose, south of Cleburne. He tried to abduct a woman walking a dog, but quickly abandons the plan, returning to Anchorage. Keyes orchestrates a ransom plan for Samantha, whose death was still not known to authorities. Keyes texted Samantha's boyfriend, Duane, a ransom note, a photo of her posting with the daily paper, even though she was already dead, and directions as to where the ransom money needed to go. Of course, her family paid the ransom. Keyes then recovered and dismembered Samantha's corpse with a chainsaw, disposing the body parts in the 
Matuskuka Lake. On February 29th, he began withdrawing the ransom money. Starting on March 6th, he began making withdrawals from Samantha's account, alerting the Alaskan authorities and the FBI who were involved in the case. They notified the Texan authorities to alert officers in the state, as well as Louisiana and Arkansas, to be on the lookout for a 2012 Ford Focus, the rental car that Keyes was currently using. Ironically enough, Keyes obtained a replacement vehicle in the form of another 2012 Ford Focus, an occurrence that would lead to his capture. And on March 11th, one of Key's younger sisters, Autumn Rose, married a member of the Church of Wells. Key's obtained the wedding ceremony and was verbally attacked by a Church of Wells elder for being an atheist. This sparked an argument which ended the ceremony where Key's began raging against God. On March 13th, Texas Highway Patrol Corporal Brian Henry noticed Key's Ford Focus. He alerted authorities and followed it onto Highway 59. Noticing that the car was speeding, Henry pulled it over alongside the road, to which many unmarked vehicles, federal agents, and Texas Rangers surrounded it. Searching Key's cars, they found Samantha's debit card and phone with the battery removed, a ski mask, a gun, cash taken from the National Bank of Texas, and highlighted maps of California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Keyes was subsequently arrested, charged with access device fraud, and charged in a Beaumont, Texas facility center. On March 26, Keyes was taken back to Anchorage, where he confessed to murdering Samantha, whose body would later be discovered on April 1st. During interviews, Keyes was shown to be calm and patient, yet frustrated at the rules that he and his attorneys were told to abide. He willingly gave terms to confess to any crime he committed and plead guilty to all charges brought against him as long as he was executed and the trial took less than a year. In April, Keyes submitted to a 6.5-hour evaluation by Ronald Roche, a Washington psychologist. It was meant to be determined whether Keyes was sane enough to make legal decisions for himself. The evaluation found that Keyes was insane and at the high average end of the intelligence spectrum, he was found to have antisocial tendencies. Investigators later struck a deal with him about finding the bodies of any potential prior victims in exchange for the media not knowing any details Keyes didn't want to make public. As a result, authorities found and unearthed a farmhouse where Keyes left the courier's corpse at, only to find indications of decomposition. Not wanting his name to be released to the media in fear of his daughter's life, he threatened to stop speaking to investigators. They brought treats for the man they suspected was the serial killer, espressos, cigars, bagels, and the occasional candy bar. They let him feel like he was in control and Israel Keyes talked and talked. Though he confessed to some of the murders and went into detail about the Courier murder, he wouldn't detail much else telling the investigators, quote, the things I've done, I don't feel bad about them. I did them for myself. It's better for me to keep them to myself. They're mine, end quote. Keyes said that his retirement plan was to build a dungeon in his home he told investigators about a catch of potential body disposal tools he had secreted along the bank of Eagle River. 
they found it based on Key's directions. Quote, I only had left that stuff there because I was planning on using it eventually. I don't like to litter. End quote. On June, a routine court hearing debated on calling the case, quote, complex, turned violent when Keyes managed to escape and tried to attack spectators, presumably in a suicide attempt. He was subdued with a taser and taken back into custody. The following day, he stressed his perception of dishonesty from the prosecutors and that the escaped attempt was unplanned and merely a reaction to stress. Because of the escaped attempt, security measures were increased on him. This included full restraints, a two-officer escort every time he left his cell, restrictions on razor and pencil possession, and daily strip and cell searches. An Anchorage police detective interviews Keyes for dozens of hours between April and October of 2012. Audio recordings of those conversations unsealed recently after a legal fight commenced by a New York author who was writing a book about Keyes. The Anchorage Daily News reviewed 13 hours of newly released audio files. The conversations illustrated a fractured thinking of an Anchorage contractor and a father who led a secret life plotting and carrying out crimes. On July 20th, WCAX broke the story on Key's connections to the disappearances of the couriers. As a result, Keyes refused to speak to the investigators for a two-month period. On August 12, 2013, federal authorities released new information on Keyes, revealing that they suspect him to have a final death toll of 11 victims, all killed from 2001 to 2012 and that there were possibly other victims in Canada and other countries. Additionally, he was confirmed to have also burglarized 20 to 30 homes and robbed several other banks in addition to the Community Bank and National Bank of Texas robberies. Keyes told investigators that the Samantha murder was one of many. He teased and said that he killed less than a dozen people around the country over more than a decade in addition to robbing banks, burglarizing houses, and arson. The other alleged or suspected victims that were believed to be unspecified locations in Washington, in 2001 they believed he killed an unnamed couple, and between 2005 and 2006 they believed that he killed two more victims separately. One was allegedly dumped at Crescent Lake, In Lee Bay, Washington, sometime in July 2001, there was another alleged unnamed victim. In Hennessack, New Jersey, on April 8, 2001, they found Deborah J. Fieldman deceased and believed that he was connected to this incident, along with the unnamed female they found on April 9th in New York. And in Texas in 2012, another unnamed victim was found, believed to have been murdered sometime after the Samantha's murder. Whenever he killed, Keyes targeted random victims, all whom lived extremely far from his home and never hit the same area twice. In all instances, he planned his murders long beforehand and took many measures to avoid detection. When he killed the couriers, Keyes struck Bill Courier with a shovel, then shot him with a 22 caliber 10-22 Ruger Charger pistol outfitted with a homemade silencer. Then he raped Lorraine Courier, strangling her to death afterwards. When he killed Samantha Kogan, He also raped her and strangled her to death, but afterwards he dismembered her body. During Aldo, Texas arson fires, he used gasoline as an accelerant. When he robbed the community bank in Tupper Lake and later the National Bank of Texas, 
He used a 40 caliber Smith & Wesson semi-automatic pistol to threaten and intimidate employees and customers. He would use the same gun to terrorize the couriers. According to the interviews with the FBI, Key strangled all of his victims, with the exception of Bill Courier, who was shot, and one victim in Washington, who was killed by blunt force trauma. As the interviews went on, Keyes was spending 23 hours a day in a cell. He complained that the guards were, quote, watching him like a hawk. He wanted the death penalty and told investigators that he had no long-term invest in survival in prison. By October, the agents told Keyes that they were losing their patience. Their bosses believed that they were being played by him. They told him they were under pressure to produce names and locations of the people Keyes claimed to have killed. Quote, the ground is freezing, Israel. If you want to be involved in helping us, it was 18 degrees outside yesterday. We don't have a lot of time to play with it. And long, cold winter, said Steve Payne, an FBI agent. And on December 2nd, Keyes wrote a two-page front-and-back suicide note. Just before slashing his wrist with a razor, mistakenly issued to him, and also hanging himself. Because of the odd method he employed in his suicide, the medical examiner was unable to tell the primary cause of death. In 2013, after Key's jailhouse suicide, a federal judge unsealed some of the interviews at the request of the then-Alaskan Dispatch, whose conversations mostly dealt with wrangling over legal procedures with the investigators and federal prosecutors over his case. But some of the sessions, as well as the psychological evaluations of Keyes were kept sealed when the author and New York Post columnist Maureen Callahan began researching a book on Keyes. She went in search of the sealed interviews. Quote, I was just told, no, you can't have them. And we're not going to tell you why. End quote. The government was so intent on keeping them sealed years after the case had been closed. She tried for years to get the files released eventually hiring Anchorage attorney Jeff Robinson to urge them to unseal the courts, the federal court in Alaska. In April, a judge ordered the government to release all the interviews as well as a psychological evaluation. Callahan's book about Keys, A Dark Night in Alaska, The Hunt for a Perfect Serial Killer, was published in 2019. Now, I didn't put Israel's daughter or ex-girlfriend's names in here just because I'm sure they've already been through enough hell over this, but I guess if you're super curious, it's just one Google search away. Thank you so much for letting me borrow your eardrums today. And remember, now more than ever, be kind, be safe.